Well, good morning. We have the privilege this morning of getting to finish our series on David. And we have called it the rise and fall, and that has been true. We have seen David's great rise. We have talked about the stories that we have heard for years. We've talked about David and Goliath. We've talked about David becoming the king. But we've also talked about the fall. We've talked about David's sin with Bathsheba, the business that went on with David's sons and Absalom. There's been some good and there's been some bad. And our task this morning is to talk about the legacy of David. And I kind of chuckled a little bit when I got tasked with doing the legacy sermon, because legacy is one of those fellowship words. If you are here long enough, you've heard the word legacy thrown out a bunch. We talk about it all the time. We talk about leaving, uh, leaving something for the next generation. In fact, when I was in Romania one time, I was doing, uh, they wanted me to do like a biblical theology of marriage. And my last topic for the marriage discussion was the idea of legacy. And I got into Deuteronomy 6 and I was really excited to go there and I'm plowing in and my friend is just laughing in the back. And so afterwards, I'm like, hey, why are you laughing? He's like, you, you fellowship men. All you do is talk about legacy, 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 legacy. That's my best Romanian accent, by the way. Um, <laughs> But it's, it's a great thing to talk about. Who are we and what are we going to leave behind? And today we're going we're gonna to uncover who David was and what David leaves behind. And to do that, we're going to start in the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 24. So I invite you to turn there with me to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 24. It is the last uh, chapter in the book of 2 Samuel. And in 24 verse 1, we just have some stuff we need to jump in right off the bat and try to figure out. And it starts with this. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, when you read a phrase like that, your first inclination is why. Why was his anger inclined against Israel? Well, a lot of times you go back to chapter 23, what's happening before. But chapter 23 is dealing with the mighty men. And it's kind of all these men who came alongside David and and were with him. And it's not really a, a bad chapter. And so why is the Lord's anger against Israel? We honestly don't know. We have nothing in the text that tells us. We know that commonly his anger is against them for rebellion. It's against them because of idolatry. But in this case, it just says that it was. Verse just gets a little stranger, though. He says, And he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. What does it mean that God said, incited David to uh, against Israel by going and numbering it. What does that mean? Well, it even gets a little more complicated when we look at a parallel passage. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, we are told, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now I'm just completely confused. Okay? Here's what we believe about the Bible. We believe the Bible is inerrant. There are no errors contained in it. And so if there's a problem trying to get something to measure up, I have to assume that the problem is with me. I have to dig deeper. And so I looked at the book of Job. And what happens in the book of Job is God is on his throne and Satan is in his presence. And God speaks to Satan and says, Have you considered my servant Job? Satan's like, of course Job does everything you want him to do. Of course he is righteous. He has everything. You have blessed him immeasurably. If you will strike him down, if you will take his stuff and cause harm to his body, 
then he would curse you. And we see this very interesting scene where God in his power relents and allows Satan to go and do what he will. In the book of James, we have another interesting verse that tells us about the character of God. It says, let no one say when they are tempted, I am being tempted. No, God does not tempt anyone, nor is he tempted by evil. So we know that God is not on the hook. So what do we do with this verse? Well, we believe that God is in control, and in a way, he could say he incited it because he allowed it to happen. But Satan is the one who came and incited David. He's the one who came and tempted David, and David was tempted. We see this in verse 2 in 2 Samuel 24. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. Now, we read that verse. It seems rather tame to us. What is going on that makes this such a big deal? Well, I believe Joab tells us in verse 3. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? David, I hope that your kingdom continues to grow. I hope it gets bigger than you could even imagine, more than you could even count. I hope that that happens while you are alive to see it. But did you see the word? Why does your heart delight? In this thing. You see, David's heart was supposed to delight in the Lord, and here it's either delighting in the size as a matter of pride of the work of his hands, or it's delighting in the number of military men who can protect him, and his trust was moving from his army from the Lord. But we know that Joab saw it, and Joab called it. But David won, because kings always win. Verse 4. But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And then in verses 5 through 8, you get all the places they went to count. And in verse 9, you get the count. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king in Israel. There were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. This counting, this numbering was an offense to the Lord and whether it was the sin of pride or the sin of lack of faith, we know that it was a front to God. We know that David had two main jobs in his life. He had the job of being a shepherd and the job of being a king. When you're a shepherd, it is a really good thing to count. You need to know the number of your flock. You have to provide care for it. You have, to, you have a responsibility to steward it. If you bring 100 sheep out to the field, it's a good thing to get all 100 sheep back. If you have more sheep that you've added to the flock, you need to be able to do that. That's a good way to count. You could be a king and count responsibly as well. You could be a king and be a good steward. But when you're a king, you also have the temptation to count because it makes you look good or you put your trust in your stuff. And David did this. And it was a great sin against the Lord. And it leads me to my first question I want to ask with you guys this morning. We know that David's sin was great. We've talked about Bathsheba, we've talked about other things, and we have this story this morning. 
But I also know that I was taught from the time I was knee-high something about David, that David was a man after God's own heart. And so my question for you is, how can David be a man after God's own heart in light of his sin? How do we make that fit? I have a really short response for you this morning. It's or short answer. The answer is his response. David's response to his sin shows us why he is a man after God's own heart. We start to see this response here in verse 10. It says in verse 10, But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. David's heart struck him. One of the reasons, what we, or one of the things that we see in David's life is we see brokenness. David was broken by his sin. He didn't need, in this case, the prophet to come and say anything. No, he understood what he did, that he acted foolishly before the Lord. And brokenness is something I think we need to talk about a little bit. I think we need to talk about brokenness in two ways, and the first is personal. I think way too many times we can see the junk in our lives as if we're looking in a mirror. We can see the things God might want to work on. We can see the things that God needs to edge and refine in us, but we're kind of okay with our faults. And we kind of are okay to lift up the rug and sweep them underneath because they're just not as bad or they're not as bad as someone else's. But the, one of the reasons why David was a man after his own heart is when he saw his sin, it broke him. It broke him to the point that it moved him to action. He was sorrowful for his sin before a holy God. I can look back over the years of the things that God has had to break me from and, when he, and the ways he has, to, has had to break, break my heart in the process. My question for you this morning is where does God need to break your heart for the sin that is in your own lives? The second thing of brokenness that I want to talk about this morning is kind of about what we see in our nation. We have had stories of sin and injustice and we've seen stories of death and violence. And I believe that as a country and as a people it needs to break our hearts. That we need to weep with those who weep. And that we need to see sin and see injustice and not be okay with it. I'm not trying to take a side on either side of the issue. I don't want to force a debate, but I look at the prophets in Scripture, and the prophets in the Scripture are grieved over the status of their country. They're grieved over the sin and the injustice they see and they cry out against it and they call for people to return to the Lord. In the early 1900s, the London Times put out a question. They wanted different essayists and different writers to respond in and answer one single question. What is wrong with the world? I ask you that question this morning. What is wrong with the world? How would you answer that? I would kill right now to be able to see your little thought bubbles, right? <laughs> of what you believe the, what is wrong with the world. Well, an author and a theologian decided to answer the question, and he picked up his pen. And G.K. Chesterton wrote back to the London Times. He said, Dear Sirs, I am. 
Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. It's a really simple yet profound answer to the problem of evil and the problem of sin and justice. We want to blame it on everything that is external and everything that is out there, and yet the problem with sin is not out there, it's in here. We have it in our own lives, and our sin needs to break us. And if we as a people would be broken of our sin and repent and be broken of our collective sin and repent, we could make some strides in the healing of our land. But it starts with brokenness. One of the reasons why David was a man after God's own heart is not that he was perfect, it's that he was broken. The second thing that David had was confession. He continues and it continues in verse 10. It says, And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. It's not just about you and the Lord. It's not just about you and your little journal. No, it's about making your brokenness open. David went and said, Lord, you know that I have sinned. You know everything. Now... I am letting you know. I have acted foolishly in your sight. Take this iniquity away from me. Confession is a very humble practice for a man or a woman after God's own heart. We see it in the New Testament in the book of James. It's confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. In 1 John 1, nine, he says, if you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just. He will forgive us of all of our sins and he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We must be a people who confess, who go to the people who we have offended and make things right, but also go to the Lord, the one that we have truly offended, and just lay our hearts bare before him. David was a man after God's own heart because there was confession. And then there's discipline. Discipline is one of those things that we don't, even, we don't really want to talk about. We don't really want to know about. We kind of hope everything just goes away in the quiet and in the secret. But discipline is one of the ways that God lets his children know he loves them. And it begins in verse 11. It says, When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. Have you ever heard the phrase, You can go pick your own switch? That's what's happening here. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in the land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. Notice David said, don't discipline me. He just wanted the one that he chose. And the discipline was severe in verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. I want to make two observations about the discipline of the Lord. One, the thing that David delighted in was the number. 
He wanted to know the number. It did something for him. It either gave him security in himself or it gave him great pride. And the very way the Lord chose to discipline him was by removing the number. You see, David really had nothing to do with the increase of the number and David had very little to do with the decrease of the number. God is in control and he wanted David to delight in him. Second observation I want to make about the discipline is that it didn't just affect David. We see this as he continues in verse 16 and 17. It says, When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who is working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. The angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aronah the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, do you hear it? These sheep. He's returning to the heart of a shepherd. These sheep, what have they done? Let your hand be against me in my father's house. The discipline should be on me. I should be the one who is perishing. Yet his discipline was greater. He had to watch the people perish. And understand that it was his sin that caused it to happen. Our sin and its consequences have far-reaching effects that go beyond what we can control. The discipline of the Lord will cause pain for our good. Here's how I know that. The author to the Hebrews tells us about discipline in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, verse 10, For they, meaning our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. Discipline never feels good. Discipline doesn't feel good when you're the receiver. It doesn't feel good when you're the parent and you're the one giving it out. But we discipline our children because we don't want them to die, as the proverb says. We want them to be able to make good choices. God does the same thing, but he has another added layer. It says that we may share his holiness. God is in the business of making us look like Jesus. And he will go to great lengths to make that happen. It says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Painful rather than pleasant. 70,000 is painful. It is not pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. David was trained by the discipline of the Lord. He was trained in the wake of Bathsheba by the discipline of the Lord. He was trained in the wake of this sin by the discipline of the Lord. And it builds up in David obedience. Verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. There was no argument. There was no sulking. It was obedience. You see, David is a man after God's own heart because he realized his sin and he confessed he accepted the discipline of the Lord and it led him to obey, to do what he needed to do to make things right. And it culminates with sacrifice. In verse 20, 
When Arunah looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arunah went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? He knew what was going on. He didn't know the why, but he saw people dying. And David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. And Arunah does what any person in this situation would do. He says, take the threshing floor, build an altar. Here's an oxen, sacrifice, go. Make this stop. But David understood the sacrifice was important. He responds in verse 24. But the king said to Arunah, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to my Lord God, the Lord my God, that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted in Israel. There's no forgiveness without sacrifice. David knew that. David knew that he had, it had to cost him something. Hebrews tells us this. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. We know that sin is costly because of what it costs our God. Our sin and our forgiveness cost our God the life of his son. Forgiveness is not costly. It requires sacrifice. David was not a perfect man, but he was a man after God's own heart because of his response. So what is David's legacy? This is the second question I want to ask you this morning. What is David's legacy? How do we think back about David? Well, we get a hint in the book of Acts, chapter 13, Luke records for us the words of Paul as Paul is teaching. In Acts chapter 13, we get two verses or just a few sentences about who David is. There's no mention of Bathsheba. There's no mention of the count. There's no mention of the job that he did or did not do as a father. No, hundreds of years later, when they are remembering who David was, this is the legacy that David had. And when he, the Lord, had removed him, Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior Jesus, as he promised. This is David's legacy. David was a man after God's own heart. It doesn't mean that he was perfect. It doesn't mean that he did everything right. But his greatest delight was in the Lord. You can read the book of Psalms and see the thing that David keeps going back to for his strength, for his worth, for his rest. It was his God. His God was his greatest delight. And in David, God found a man after his own heart. 
He was a man that did all of the will of God, not part of it. Saul did part of it. And because of that, God got rid of Saul and he found in David someone who would do exactly what he was asked to do so that God would get the glory. But the greatest legacy that we get from David is not just that he was a man after God's own heart or that he did God's will. No, it's from his line, from his lineage came the promised one, the Messiah, Jesus. You see, in this respect, David's legacy was perfect. We have a perfect Savior who came from his line that God set up. This perfect Savior would be the one who would come and sacrifice so that we wouldn't have to sacrifice anymore. He is the one who has come and covered our sin when we trust in him. He is the one that we have been waiting for and looking for, and it is only in him will we find what true delight is. David's greatest legacy is that from his line, we have been given Jesus. And so I have one more question to ask you this morning. And the question is, what will your legacy be? What will your legacy be? There is no answer to the question. There is no blank to fill in because I can't answer this for you. I can tell you what I want for me. I can tell you what I want for my family. And I can even tell you what I want for you. But I can't answer the question of what your legacy will be. That is something you get to fill in. But I want to tell you not to set your sights too low. We all desire to be a good husband or father or a good mother and wife. Those are really good things. We teach on those things. We train on those things. But in the end, that's shooting too low. We want to have a good reputation. We want to be a good employee. We want to be good friends. We want to have good relationships. Those are all really good things. We teach and train on them too. But if that is the legacy that we pass down to our children and our children's children, to me it just falls short. What I want for myself And what I want for my family, my wife and my children, and what I want for you is that we would be men and women after God's own heart. That we would be men and women who find our greatest delight in him. That the sways of the world would not have their way with us because our gaze is on the Savior. And we can do that if we follow in David's legacy and we know the son of David. It is Jesus who saves us. It is Jesus who sanctifies us. It is Jesus who builds a legacy in us to give to our children and our children's children. May we be men and women who follow after God, who do his will, because of Jesus. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the story of David. There is so much for us to learn from him. We can learn about being brave and about being courageous. We can learn about being kings and leaders. Father, but we can also learn from his falls. Father, you is a broken man who in repentance submitted to you. You forgave and you restored him. Father, we are all broken people. We bring nothing to the table but our sin. But because of Jesus, you have loved us and you have saved us. And in your grace, you are making us look more like you. Father, I pray that we would leave here and our greatest desire would be to know you and to follow you. Father, I pray that we would trust in you more than we trust in the things of this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.